Because without our language, we have lost ourselves. Who are we without our words? Phoenix and Another Rock by Melina Marchetta. Hi, welcome to the first episode of the hashtag LoveOzWaye podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you to you for clicking on some random link and then pressing play. Your support is very much appreciated. I guess I'll first introduce myself. I'm Brayden. I was a blogger for up to four years, reviewing predominantly young adult fiction and science fiction fantasy. For the last three years now, I have been a bookseller at Book Bonding in Essendon and Gisborne in Victoria. And it's that role that has pushed me further into understanding how publishing works and about the local publishing industry and what it truly means to support the local arts, be it the written word, theatre, music or film and television. I am also an aspiring writer, but this isn't about me. This is about the movement that we've slowly seen grow. Hashtag love OzYA. Shortly I'll be speaking to debut author David Burton about his YA memoir, How To Be Happy, which won the 2014 Text Prize and was published on the 26th of August. Also, Fiona Wood will be speaking to me about her new novel, Cloudwish, an extension of the world we know and have adored from Six Impossible Things and Wildlife. But let's lay the groundwork first. Danielle Binks is on the podcast to discuss hashtag LoveOzYA and what it's all about. Most of you listening to this podcast will know Danielle as a reviewer at Alpha Reader a book review blog she established in 2009. That same year, she had completed a professional writing and editing degree at RMIT. Danielle is also an emerging writer and has seen her creative writing be featured in VoiceWorks and Yen magazine, while her topical articles relating to children's and young adult literature have been published for Kill Your Darlings. She was also chosen this year as one of Melbourne Writers Festival's 30 Under 30. Danielle is currently working on her YA manuscript, The True Constant. Thanks for joining me, Danielle. Hello, thank you for having me. So what is hashtag LoveOzYA and what are the reasons for the movement? So hashtag LoveOzYA was coined by author Ali Marnie and she started the conversation because back in May, the Australian Library and Information Association, otherwise known as ALIA, they released a list of the most borrowed books from public libraries around Australia. And there were four categories adult nonfiction, adult fiction, YA fiction, and children's books. In all but one of these categories, Australian writers accounted for half of the most popular books, except in the YA category, which was mostly dominated by American authors. But Ali Marnie coined the term Love Oz YA because she was one of only two Australian authors on the list, and she wanted to talk about why that was. So that's where it started from. And what's interesting about the other titles is that most of them were film adaptations yeah. and that attracts the readers to those well, types yeah, of books. Well, yeah, so the only person on the list to have not had one of their books adapted was Ali Mani, which I think just goes to show how amazing her every trilogy is, that it stood out amongst all of these other blockbusters and has done so incredibly well. Because you're right, seven of the top ten books on that list are either film or, or TV adaptations or both. Actually, I think the only one on there that's both is Cassandra Clare's because her first Mortal Instruments series didn't do very well as a movie, but it's going to become the Shadowhunters TV series next year. And I mean, not many Australians would know about the TV series yet. No, but it just goes to show that it's one book series that's done amazing things and is going to go on to do even more amazing things. So it's kind of hard to combat against that as Australian authors because, yeah, you're coming up against all of these big blockbusters. And I think it was Ali Marnie that said, you know, you're up against things that have Happy Meals associated with them. You know, they're, they're literally yeah. everywhere. They're, they're in our bookshops. They're in our cinemas. They're, you know, you buy little figurines of them with Happy Meals and they're, they're really infiltrating all aspects of pop culture. So it's kind of hard to stand out in all of that crowd when you're a little Aussie. And looking at that top 10 list, I wouldn't have guessed to have seen uh, Ali's books. Yeah, well, I just got, well, I was kind of thinking about it. Ali's series, if you don't know, the Every Trilogy, it's a kind of riff on Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle, but set in modern day Melbourne, and it's about teenagers. And Watson is a teenage girl, and the Sherlock character is called Mycroft. She writes really fantastic, gritty crime teen novels, so much so that the Sisters in Crime have nominated her several times now for the Darbot Awards, 
which are a big deal in Australia. It's women writing crime. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And I was trying to think of any American authors who were doing very good teen crime novels, and I couldn't really think of any. <laughs> so I think Ellie being on there is for the fact that she's writing something that's so completely original and, you know, there's no equivalent of it in America. So she's really found a, a niche target genre and audience to stand out in. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like you think about the John, you know, John Green's on there twice and John Green is their only author on the Alia Top 10 to have to be listed twice. Mm-hmm. So you think, okay, well, he's covered contemporary. And then you, you think Cassandra Clare is writing about paranormal urban fantasy sort of stuff. Yeah. Suzanne Collins is on there as the dystopia, as is James Dashner. You know, everyone else has, has kind of covered the genre bases, but Ali Marnie is wholly original for her crime series. Personally, that's just, I'm, I'm sort of theorizing about how she got on there. No, that's fine. And it's because she's amazing. Yeah, that's, definitely. I can only conclude that. <laughs> <laughs> what initiatives are being organized to promote the movement? Well, it's, it's probably easier to say that Love Oz YA was somewhat inspired by a similar grassroots movement that came out of the UK, which was called Project UKYA. And that was started by a blogger called Lucy Powery, who's better known as the Queen of Contemporary. Uh, and that was also started a couple of years ago for similar reasons to push back against the flood of American YA and to really help raise the profile of British authors and British YA books. And they did things like just having blog tours for authors. They did things like getting bookshops involved by having stands that were all Project UK YA so that teenagers going into bookshops could very easily find shelves that were full of wonderful British authors. So that's what it was inspired by and that's what's sort of been happening with Love Oz YA a little bit. The hashtag was created just to frame the conversation on social media across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr and everything. And, you know, the podcast is kind of great. There is stuff happening in bookshops all over Australia. Bloggers individually are doing great things. They're making top 10 lists of their favourite YA authors. Vloggers are doing similar. I should say that nobody owns the hashtag or the campaign. So it's kind of amazing to see everyone's ideas coming together in a collaborative way and everyone's sort of inspiring one another. I think it's really interesting. One idea that I had, which was uh, quite a lot inspired by an American blog called Epic Reads, which I believe is owned by HarperCollins America, but they do these series of posts called Like, Try, Why, which is where they say, if you like this book, try this book, and here's why. And I thought, okay, um, I'm going to do that for the Alia Top 10 list. Like, here's the top 10, most of them American, if you like these books, here are some Australian equivalents, either because they're writing in the same genre or there's some sort of component in the book that's similar, and here's why you should read it, the Australian version. So I did that on my blog. And then a fabulous Aussie YA author, Trinity Doyle, who's also a very clever graphic designer, turned that blog into a poster, and that poster was then shared through numerous channels, and it's available via Dropbox if you want it. I've seen that cropping up across libraries in Australia and bookshops, and that's one way, I think, of getting teens thinking about deliberately seeking out YA books. Yeah, and as a bookseller, I'm working at a bookstore, and I've put that poster up, and I've seen a few teens come in, even just adults, look at it and uh, really take a glance at it and realise that some of those books are Australian. Yeah. And it's also nice to see readings in Carlton. They have, you know, a couple shelves dedicated to Australian YA, and, um, yeah, no, it's great. And then there's a few events popping up. Yes, there are. So... um... Um, I was lucky enough to be part of uh, the first kind of event that kicked it all off was reading, did a Where's Oz YA Going Right and Where's It Going Wrong event. And I was on that panel with Marissa Pintado from Hardy Grant Egmont and Melissa Keel, who is the amazing author of The Incredible Adventures of Cinnamon Girl, which is on the Inkies long list. And I was on there with Susan Lamarca, who's also an incredible teacher librarian. We're just talking about Love Oz YA. And then I know several other bookshops turned around and said, oh, can we put on a Love Oz YA event? And we all sort of went, of course you can. <laughs> nobody, nobody owns the hashtag. You can do whatever you want with it. So I know that uh, Robinson's Bookshop is going to be doing something. And I'm sure there are lots of other bookshops that are thinking about doing things. And if they are thinking about doing things, I would completely support that and say go for it. Really simple just to make a display table of Love Oz YA books. Just even new release Aussie YA books. And if you put the hashtag somewhere on there, teens will know that that means, hey, 
go and check this out and they can sort of be tapped into the entire conversation and hopefully become a part of it. They will take notice. Yes, they will. They're very cluey. Are there any organisations or places where these teens can go to find more information about Australian YA? I would recommend first and foremost the Centre for Youth Literature. If you don't know, the Centre for Youth Literature is a national program designed basically to connect teenagers to books and writing. Love Oz YA is sort of the flashy new conversation starter that we've come up with but the center for youth literature have been doing this very thing since their inception and they are a completely amazing organization they do things like the inky awards which are Mm -hmm. um, book awards entirely in the hands of teen readers they choose the shortlist and they choose the winners (laughs) they are completely amazing and if you want some incredible recommendations for Aussie YA. Go and have a look at the Golden Inky Award Longlist, which are all the Australian titles. And then also there's Inside a Dog website, which is a fantastic place for teenagers to congregate and talk about books and swap reading recommendations. So first and foremost, I think Centre for Youth Literature Shout out to them. They're amazing. Check them out on Twitter. Go visit Inside a Dog. They're an invaluable resource. What more can we do to support this movement? Well, I think we need to start looking a bit more behind the scenes about how teenagers are actually finding books, which is probably going to take us reaching out to places like the ABA, the Australian Booksellers Association. Because once we started talking about Love, Oz, YA... We, we did start asking the question of, well, where do teenagers get their reading recommendations from? And I know that ahead of the readings panel, uh, a very cluey reading staff member sat down with a teen book club from the 100-storey building. And they all collectively said that they don't necessarily know if a book they're reading is written by an Australian author or an international author because they just want a good book. They don't necessarily go looking for a good book by an Australian author. And, you know, lots of them also get their reading recommendations from Goodreads without necessarily being aware that Goodreads is owned by Amazon. And you take that into account, you start realising that if you buy your books online from retailers, from overseas retailers like Amazon and Book Depository, which lots lots of people do right now, you've kind of got to understand that those websites are not stacked in the favour of Australian authors. They're very geared towards American authors in the American market, which is fair enough. And sometimes people just want to get a bargain or sometimes people just want to get the book that they want to get. But you've kind of got to understand the ecology and the economics behind it, which is a bit of a drag, I know. (laughs) But it pays to know that even if you're buying a book from an international author, it does well to the industry if you buy it from a bricks-and-mortar Australian store preferably an independent bookstore because then that money goes back into the Australian publisher's pocket and that lets them go and publish more amazing books and actually put money towards Australian authors as well. So it's all a bit of a cycle and I think we've maybe got to start telling teenagers, please don't buy your books from Amazon or Book Depository. (laughs) I think that might be the next conversation to be had around Love Oz Yeah, I completely agree. And, And like going back to that ALIA list where most of those books were of the adaptation variety, you know, there's a lot of talk about Australian young adult books wanting to be made into or, you know, being adapted into TV or film. But the Australian Mm -hmm. screen industry is looking at projects that will make them money in the long run. And if they don't see a core audience for those teen books, then they won't do it. They won't go ahead and make those books into films or television shows. Totally. comes back to teens buying those books from physical bookstores and promoting those books, not just, you know, at school or at home or in Australia, but globally. So that way these production companies that, you know, do film television, that that way they can see those books have potential to make them money in the future. Totally. And I will say that this affecting Australian YA is not unique to other arts industries in Australia. A similar problem is being faced by the Australian Television Association because of things like Netflix. When things like that infiltrate Australian TV, then you're going to start seeing a lot less local content. So it's why that you should really get behind programs like Glitch on ABC TV because it's a locally produced, you know, television show. And the film industry as well. I know Melina Marquetta has written the screenplay to much uh, rabid fangirl enthusiasm on my part of On the Jellicoe Road, but she's recently blogged about how hard it is to get distribution for that film 
So it's still in the planning stages because it's hard being a little Aussie film production these days in the global marketplace because there are those global forces coming in. So, you know, it's all connected. The arts industry is very much all connected. And I think this is kind of unique to Australian YA at the moment, or at least it seems that way to the alia list. But there's that statistic floating around that says for every one book on our shelves, there are nine international buy-ins. So that's kind of scary because Australia has an illustrious literary history and I'd hate to see that be affected in any way purely because we're living in a very global marketplace now and, uh, you know, the buyers and the readers have as much impact on this industry now as the writers, as the publishers, as the editors. Love Oz YA has not been conceived to wag a finger at teen readers and say, don't read John Green anymore because, heck, I read John Green. I think he's amazing too. More the point is please be aware that there are these amazing Australian authors out there who you may not be aware of because, as I said before, the channels that you're choosing to buy your books from or hear about your books from. So just be really aware that John Green has a pretty impressive platform. He's got, I, I think I did a statistic that said his Nerdfighters YouTube channel gets more views than the best rated episode of MasterChef in Australia. (laughs) So put that into perspective and just realize that you do have to really go out and look for Australian books by Australian authors because they don't have that sort of platform over here. We just can't compete in that huge American market. So be very aware if you are getting your book rec from Goodreads, from the Amazon algorithm just know that they're not really Australian friendly. But that doesn't mean that it's not a bad thing that you're reading American authors. It just means be a little bit more aware aware of where you're getting your recommendations from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now I'm not going to ask you your like top 10 favorite YA Australian books because that's just (laughs) completely harsh and illogical. (laughs) But what does Love Oz YA mean to you? Jeez, so many things. When I was a teenager decades and decades and decades ago I didn't have the Amazons and the book depositories I just had to go down to my local local bookshop and browse the shelves or my library and browse the shelves and I was mostly reading a lot of Australian YA and New Zealand YA because that was what was most easily accessible so I grew up on a healthy diet of YA and I owe my entire reading life to the likes of Melina Marquetta and John Marsden and Maureen McCarthy and so many more. So I've grown up reading them and they turned me into reader, a reader for life. So, you know, I wouldn't be the bookish nerd that I am now <laughs> had I not grown up reading about myself in the pages of books and thinking that my stories were worthwhile because they meant so much to me when I read them, you know? Yeah. It's hard to talk about because it's so intrinsic to who I am as a reader that I grew up on this really healthy diet of incredible, incredible Australian literature. So, yeah. Yeah, and and now you're an emerging writer currently writing your own YA manuscript. Yeah. So, obviously, being invested in such a movement is crucial to what you hope to achieve with that manuscript. Yes, absolutely. I would hope that things like the Alia Top 10 don't have publishers thinking, oh, maybe we should be looking at buying more international titles because that's what the kids are wanting to read, as opposed to putting money behind looking for new Australian voices and cultivating those voices, of which I'm hopefully one day going to be one of them. And You know, this year I've been lucky enough to be invited to the Melbourne Writers' Festival as part of their 30 Under 30 initiative, which is, you know, the next generation of writers. And I wouldn't have been invited to that if I didn't feel like there was a really welcoming and positive writing community in Australia that was fostering me and helping me to become a writer and to hone my craft. And I'd hate to think that I wouldn't be offered anything at the end of that because there's this assumption that teenagers only want to read American stories by American authors. Yeah. So, yeah, please buy Aussie YA. (laughs) No, that was a really good response. Mm, It brings something personal to this movement. And, like, I hope that Australian teenagers know that stories about them and for them are important. And Americans don't have, you know, they don't know everything about teen life, especially Australian teen life. There are still stories that we need to be told in Australia. And adjacent to that, I think the other grassroots movement that is kind of tied into Love Us YA is the We Need Diverse Books movement. That movement is very different in Australia than it is in America. We need to talk more about 
our lack of Indigenous authors and Indigenous characters, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that movement will fall by the wayside if we don't champion local authors and local content. It's what I said before. It's all the ecology. It's all connected. We're all part of the cycle, yeah. <laughs> the cycle of the reading life. And you just need to be aware that you're a very... As a reader, as a writer, you know, you're a very intricate part of that. You've covered some very interesting points that I hope people listening to this go away with and and think more carefully about how they purchase their books and what it all means for the local industry, in particular, the local voices. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll see you in the podcast more in the future. Oh, I hope so. So that was the wonderful Danielle Binks talking about the Love Osway movement and what we can do to support it. Before we talk to David Burton and Fiona Wood about their books, I will just highlight some books that have come out in the last few months that might have missed your radar. There was In the Skin of a Monster by Catherine Barker, Green Valentine by Lily Wilkinson, Talk Underwater by Catherine Lomar, The Foretelling of Georgie Spider by Amberlynn Quamalina, which is the conclusion to the Tribe trilogy, The Beauty is in the Walking by James Maloney, and if you're looking for something a bit more non-fiction, We Are the Rebels, The Women and Men Who Made Eureka by Claire Wright, which is an abridged teen version of her Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. Danielle had also mentioned about Inside a Dog and the Inky Awards. Now it's exciting that the shortlist was announced for the Inky Awards just a few days ago. So I'll share with you the authors and their titles which were shortlisted for the Golden Inky. So first up, we have The Incredible Adventures of Cinnamon Girl by Melissa Keel. Razorhurst by Justine Labalestia, Lorinda by Alice Pung, The Intern by Gabrielle Toza, and The Protected by Claire Zwan, which I might add won the CBCA 2015 award for older readers. So now I'm joined by David Burton. David is a writer from Brisbane. He's best known for his award-winning theatrical work. In other words, he is a playwriter. And in 2014 last year, he won the Tex Prize for Children and Young Adults Writing for his memoir, How To Be Happy, which is published now, and we will be talking right now about How To Be Happy, which was a memoir that I absolutely loved and adored with every neuron in my brain. So, without further ado, let's talk to David. How did you learn about the text prize? I, I was thinking about this the other day. I have a feeling I submitted what must be a fairly crap manuscript quite a few years ago when I was trying my hand at a bunch of different things. And I thought, oh, maybe I could write a book for young people. But I just always remember it as being like, you know, the big thing. And I kind of, I entered at that stage going, look, there's not a chance in hell, but maybe I'll get some feedback and get an idea about where I sit. So it was it was just always on the cards and part of the writing community as like the text prize is is a is a thing that people aim for. And when I when I entered it, you know, last year, I was I was completely gobsmacked to be shortlisted, let alone win. So it's been very, very thrilling to um be part of that journey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations on your win uh, last Thanks year so for the text prize for your memoir, How to Be Happy. But coming from a playwright background, it must have been a, a real change to write a, a book yeah. or a memoir. Yeah. But what inspired you to write a memoir about your life than a fictional novel, which a lot of people, you know, want to write when, they, when they're in the teens? Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I wrote a memoir because I think I'm the most interesting person that ever lived. And... <laughs> I regard myself as hugely important. No, not at all. I, yeah, I, as you say, I, I did a lot of plays and I, have, I, I still do a lot of plays. And a lot of the theatre work I did kept me in the orbit of young people. I wrote a lot of young and education plays and I ended up, I did a lot of workshops and a lot of kind of freelance teaching. And I was asked at some stage by a teacher to come and speak to a group of year 12s and share my story of growing up. And my story of growing up involves, uh, I, I battled with anxiety and depression for a very long time and still do, I guess, as an adult and, and, and wrestled with some sexual confusion, yeah. um, which thankfully has since settled down. <laughs> and, 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 and the normal things that people wrestle with when they grow up, which is, which is a lot of identity confusion and a lot of family and friend kind of relationships sorting out and I kind of just laid that on the table for this group of year 12s and the response I got was overwhelming and and that kind of talk led to other talks of, of a similar nature and after these talks these students would come up to me 
and be very keen to share their story or to ask advice. Mm. Um, and some of these stories are very dark and involve things like domestic violence or coming out or dealing with sexual abuse or dealing with self-mutilation, things that generally teen we're all aware of happens in adolescence and adolescents deal with, but we perhaps don't listen to those stories as carefully as we might. And I started to realise that as a 15-year-old and as a, or as a 16-year-old, there is nothing I would have liked more than to have heard from an adult who has been through it all and to go, look, yeah, you're really horny um, and your friends are confusing yeah. um, and you don't know what to do with school and you can kind of get through it. And, and to just present a story that's very, very honest and hopefully very approachable and accessible as well. And, and that kind of motivated me after speaking to those young people and seeing the effect I had firsthand. It didn't feel like something I could do with theatre just because it was so personal. Yeah. Um, and it felt more comfortable to write about. So yeah, and now and now we've got this this thing, this book, yeah. and it's and I feel very and you know and since in the years since we've gotten better as a country talking about the fact that mental health is a big issue, mm. um, especially for young people and especially for young men, and the statistics aren't pretty about it. So it's it that's served as even more motivation to be like, I think we I think we need to find ways that we can talk about it in a safe way, in an accessible way, and in an honest way. So yeah, that's that's where the book okay. comes from. In your memoir, you mention a lot about a lot of things that would contribute to someone trying to find their identity in those teen years. So, you know, you've yeah, had absolutely. the sexuality issues, you've had you've had mental health problems with your anxiety and your depression. Your yep. younger brothers have aspersions, so there's a whole lot of yep. family, I guess, yep. angst to come into that but yeah what to yeah. you what are the effects that sexuality has on someone's identity well as a young person i think it's huge because when you're young you understand that sexual identity particularly particularly back in my day uh which wasn't <laughs> that long ago was only about 10 years ago but uh sexual identity meant something more than just who you might prefer to sleep with or you might be attracted to. Particularly as a man, it came with a whole sense of cultural baggage about how you behave, what kind of TV shows you watch, what music you might listen to, and who you are. Yeah, definitely. So that almost by default as a 16-year-old, because I acted a certain way or because I liked certain things, or I, or I should say basically because I didn't like sport and because I did like the arts, that automatically, and I got on well with girls, I had a lot of female friends, Automatically, I kind of felt that I, I culturally might be homosexual. And then to add on to that, what I think is fairly normal and fairly healthy curiosity about, about what, you know, sex with the same sex or sex with the opposite sex, I kind of, I kind of took on the label for myself of, oh, I'm gay. And that, that label actually came as a relief. Because it meant that I suddenly had permission to be a certain type of man yeah. and to act a certain type of way and to have relationships and friendships with women that didn't have a romantic pressure attached to them. And, and that actually taught me a lot. But, of course, it confused me all the more when I still found myself attracted sexually to women. So it's a confusing minefield. And I, I think it comes down to the fact that we don't have, especially when we're young, a tremendously sophisticated language how we talk about sexuality and identity yeah. and how we talk about the idea of what's normal and, and what's a normal thought to have and what, what it means to be a certain type of man or a different type of man and the whole gender politics thing. I think Generation Y and the millennials are, are obviously, you know, the most open about that and the most kind of freewheeling about that as, as opposed to other generations in the past. But we've still got a ways to go, I think, in finding healthy ways to talk about it and come to terms with it. Yeah, definitely. I, Does I, that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, no, I completely agree and I understand you. Yeah, yeah 100%. Cool. And, and you mentioned about your memoir being approachable and mm. what was the other word you used? Accessible. Accessible yeah, and I definitely found that. I mean, I'm 22, oh, cool. but your writing style really, it really took it to a level where teenagers especially could take something away from that. And it wasn't yeah. just a, you know, straight, factual, dated memoir. 
yeah. of someone's life. Oh, this happened here and yeah. that happened then. And, but yeah. they don't really take anything away from that. But as far as the writing went, how did you go about it? Did you have a bunch of experiences and events in your life where you were, we were basically like, oh, I'll tick that off or tick that off? Or was it basically <laughs> like a, you started from one place and you just write whatever came into your head and like edited it? All together later. Uh, well, thank you. First of all, it, it means a lot that you that you think it's accessible because that's that's really important. Obviously, you know, especially for young men, you want to make sure that you've got them. Um, like any young adult uh, piece of work, I I think it, it's it was a complicated mess writing it. It, it, all, it all came fairly easily, and I knew what I wanted to talk about. There was this weird line where. I mean, the sexuality thing's a perfect example of. There was a weird line where I kind of felt the need, you know, as an adult to stop the story and to step out of it and go, okay, let me give you some advice about coming out or let me, let me speak to you more directly and more broadly about the idea of sexuality so that the story actually stopped. And it kind of landed in this confusing place almost for a couple of drafts between memoir and self-help. But as I kept writing more and more of the self-help stuff went. And that was something that text helped a lot with, is just the uh, Jane Pearson, my fantastic senior editor at text. One of the first things she said was, you know, the strongest thing is the story. Just stick by the story and, and let that speak for itself. And people will have their own reaction or commentary around it, however they feel. And that felt like a big leap because it was placing all my trust in the stories that are there. But she was right, of course, because it is it is a work for young adult. So you still have the same kind of framework that you would with a fiction work. You know, there are still certain conventions like, you know, ending ending a chapter on a cliffhanger or or keeping it grounded in anecdotes and dialogue as much as you can. And all of those kind of conventions are really are really mm-hmm. useful. But also, as a, as a memoirist, it helps to give it distance and it helps to be able to look at it in a more technical way and go, how does this actually work as a story? And that allows you to be a bit more forensic as, a, as opposed to emotional about what bits might stay in or go out and things like that. And also, the big, I mean, the biggest editorial question the whole time was, you know, I'm a 15-year-old boy who is going through you know, X, Y, and Z in life. And I've probably, I've only may have read, you know, one to three books recreationally before. Um, What's going to really speak to me and what's going to keep me reading? And that was the question Mm. through the entire process because there is this imagined 15-year-old called Ed or something in my head who I've been writing for this entire time. Um, and I sincerely hope he likes it because uh, the book's for him. So, yeah, but, but I mean, I mean, all of that makes it sound like a far tidier process than it was. Of course, it was a mess and <laughs> it was years of drafting and figuring it out and, yeah, getting it, getting amongst it and, yeah. Yeah, so did you submit this those years ago at that tax prize? A few years ago, I submitted a fiction manuscript or I, I, I don't even think it was complete I think it was me playing around with an idea that I wasn't terribly confident about this by the time this manuscript got into the hands of text it was complete I'd worked on it for a few years I'd shared it around to a few people whose opinion I really cared about and I'd taken on their feedback very closely and it had been the result of many years of work and thought to get it to that stage. And I kind of had gotten it to a point where I was like, given my experience, I don't know what else to do with this. So I'm going to submit it to everyone and everything for about 12 months. It'll be rejected and I'll self-publish it and I'll earn about 2 bucks fifty, and uh, I'll forget about it. Um, and, I, and I was very, very lucky uh, to, to win the text prize and I was very surprised. So yeah, that was lovely. So have have you read much young adult fiction while writing the memoir, or going back to that first manuscript? Um, I've always been a fan of young adult. Man, I I I read, of course, as a young adult, and I've never really stopped. I'm I'm afraid I have only in the last two years, I think, along with the rest of Australia, is my sense, I have woken up to the fact of just how many authors we have in Australia who are fantastic young adult authors. Before that, I have been a bit of a populist, uh, you know, reader and along with everybody else read 
you know, John Green's work and Suzanne Collins and Twilight because I felt obligated and, you know, uh, <laughs> Harry Potter, the Harry Potter books as a, as, a young, as a young person for me, I grew up with those and those are fairly foundational spiritual texts. Yeah. And, and now that I am being so blessed to be welcomed into this community, I'm just being introduced to so many wonderful authors and so many fantastic works that I'm that I'm really really enjoying and that we have fantastic talent here it's great yeah I mean with Love Oz Way especially um I like I don't want it to be just on fictional characters and and those experiences I want it to be a bit more broadly about teen experiences in any media yeah um be it stage or, or film or tv shows and even memoirs but yeah definitely i think that's really important what you've just what you've just said because there is a lot out there there's a lot of teenage stories and and how we portray teenagers and how we use teenagers in stories and in film and tv and um and non-fiction and fiction work i think that's a that's a minefield of discussion that a lot of the time goes unexamined but has such a huge influence i mean I, for me as a young person I was just so captivated by, you know, the characters in Harry Potter or the characters in Tomorrow When the War Began mm. and found them so sexy and so alluring and looked up to them and wanted to be them. And fortunately for both of those examples, I would say that they're fairly positive role models. But there's also weird role models out there for, for teenagers that are that are interesting, I think, and send different messages. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good. This it's good. Well done, Brendan. Uh, what I'm trying to say is I think you're onto a winner, mate. Well done. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm not the best at it, but I'm getting <laughs> no, there. No, no, it's great. <laughs> but in terms of um, coming back to the memoir, how do you prepare your friends and family for spilling the beans on your personal life? Um, I mean, you do change the names of your characters. Yeah. Um, or the people in your life. Um, but, yeah, yeah. how... How do they take it? Well, yeah, as you say, all the names are changed in, in the work. Generally, for 90% of the people who, um, 90% of the people are still somehow either very closely connected in my life or are connected by association, like they're friends of friends or, you know, they're still around in my circle. Right. And so I just kind of very humbly, I didn't know how else to do it. I just kind of very humbly approached them. When I knew it was going to be published, I approached them and went, look, I've written about our time together and I have this point of view and you're welcome to read it and talk about it. And we can talk about if there's anything that makes you really uncomfortable, we can talk about how we might modify that. I think offering anything less would have um, made me lose some sleep and made me feel like not a great human being yeah. and offering anything more would have made me lose control of what is my story and look it's a memoir like it says that on the cover yeah <laughs> it's, my of, it's my point of view yeah. it's not it's not the absolute truth what i found and was so lucky and I, and i'm grateful to say that this happened in every instance that it was actually a really lovely experience to be able to hand it over and then have a conversation with your ex-girlfriend or a friend you don't talk to that often or whoever about a time that, you know, because in life you just go through it. It's very rare to kind of stop, reconnect and together look back on that time. It, it was a very healing thing a lot of the time. And generally, in fact, nothing really changed from when I handed it to them. Uh, because in the writing, I wanted to be very careful with how I portrayed people. Because there's no one in the book that I hate, that I'm like, ah, oh, this person really screwed me over. You know, it's not that sort of memoir. It's it's a relationship complicated thing. So, you know, it, it, family represents another layer. And certainly I've had that healing conversation with them. But it is complicated because family is ongoing. And so you just try and be as compassionate and open yeah. as possible and and with my family I was very open and gave them you know drafts and so on but once again I've been very lucky to be blessed with very generous parents who trust me and and also believe in you know the purpose of the work which is about you know letting out stories about mental health difficulties and so on uh, and they can see how that will help so they're on board so yeah i've been very lucky yeah i'm coming time. back to your parents there's parts of the book where it's all about seeking help for whatever you're facing now i was sharing the pages of the memoir to your parents was that a, a way for you to yeah. unload what you were experiencing or or what you were feeling and your emotions during your teenage years 
I didn't share the pages with mum and dad as I was writing it because I felt like I needed to keep the process separate. But certainly when you're reflecting on that time, you realise, and we've all done this as adults, you look back at your teenage years and go, I was a prick. And you're a prick because you're 16. <laughs> and you, and you, and of course you are. You throw tantrums yeah. and you're hormonal and you have a warped perspective and there are teenagers are perfectly capable of not being very nice people. And mum and dad tried so hard, so hard. They could see I was struggling and really wanted me to get help and really tried to get me the help I needed. Alas, when you're 15 and you've got this idea in your head that you need to be independent and you need to show everyone that you don't need help and you, and you need to be strong and you certainly don't want to accept help from mummy and daddy, you actually turn that compassion away. And being able to recognise that and go back and, and, and forgive myself for doing that and being able to say sorry to them and talk about it and reflect on it is very, has, has absolutely, as you say, been healing. And it, it's also that extra reminder as an adult that you've got a loving community, you know. And that, so much of the book for me is about that, is you've got help around you if you just open your mouth and um, ask for it. And we all need that reminder, yeah. um, I think. So, yeah, it was healing. You know, I could talk to you all day about all the stuff that your book deals with, but I think we've reached our time. And, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, David. Thank you so much for reading it and being so kind about it and uh, and having me on. I really appreciate it. It's such a, um, you know, I'm just, I'm a newbie. I'm just being introduced, but it's such a vibrant community that I feel like I'm stepping into the Australian young adult scene. Like, it feels like a really good time. And I hope you have the best of times with the release of How to Be Happy. All right, so that was David Burden, whose memoir, How to Be Happy, which we just talked about, is now on bookstore shelves. So now we get to Fiona Wood. Before writing for young adults, Fiona Wood has written for television on shows ranging from The Secret Life of Us to Home and Away and Neighbours. Fiona is the author of Six Impossible Things and Wildlife, which the latter had won the CBSA Book of the Year Award for Older Readers in 2014 and shortlisted for countless others, including the Queensland Literary Awards, as well as the Victorian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. She has served as a judge for the Augie Awards, the Australian Writers Guild Awards, and is an ambassador for the Stella Prior Schools Program. Hi, Fiona, and welcome to the Lovell's Way podcast. How are you? Hi, Brayden. Thank you for having me. I'm very well. That's good. Okay, so in September, you have your third novel, Cloud Wish, coming out. For readers who haven't read Wildlife or Six Impossible Things before yet and uh, quite new to you and picking up Cloudwish, what can readers expect from that novel? Well, the three novels are interlinked and have some character migration, but each one is a standalone title. And Cloudwish is set at the city campus of Crowthorne Grammar uh, at the beginning of year 11. The main character is Van Ock Fan, who features as a very minor character in Wildlife, but for Cloudwish, she takes centre stage. She's a Vietnamese-Australian character and a scholarship student. Uh, she's a, a quiet, shy girl, but with really strong opinions, and she's very well informed, and she's really creative. She's an artist. And right at the beginning of the book, uh, she's in an English class where they're doing creative writing and there's a visiting writer taking the class who has a box of creative prompts. So she's passing this around the class and Vanok is reflecting on the fact that she hates creative writing. It's her least favourite part of English. And if it's okay, I'll read a couple of paragraphs that sort of sets up the one of the story strands in the book. Ms Bardlock came over, stirred her hand through the box and offered it to Vanok again. A glass vial peeped out from under the postcards. That looked a bit more interesting. She examined it at close range. A little tube of glass, each end sealed with a twist. Inside, a floating slip of paper on which one word was written in spidery, faded ink. Wish. The vial warmed to blood temperature in her hand as she free-associated with the chosen item, as they'd been instructed to do. Wish led straight to Billy Gardner, naturally. In a different world, she might belong here. She would not live in the dumping category of scholarship, poor, smart, Asian. She'd be one of the guys. Plenty of the guys were Asian, of course. It was a diverse community. But unlike Van Ock, they were from backgrounds of privilege, corporate expats' kids or second and third generation locals. 
She imagined having money in her pocket for after-school coffees in Greville Street, at leisure all weekend simply to hang out, stories to swap about her latest holiday, a family she'd feel relaxed enough about to take for granted, even to bitch about occasionally, and a boy like Billy Gardner. She had permission, instruction to wish. Sugar high and depressing come down on the horizon. Deep breath. She wished with a quick, hard ache of impossibility that Billy Gardner liked her, more than liked her, preferred her to all the girls in the school, all the girls in the world, found her fascinating. That's Manock in the creative writing class. And disconcertingly, Brayden, straight after that, Billy starts following her around like a puppy and she has a very strong (laughs) worry that she has somehow wished his affection into being. However, she's a really rational, clever girl, so she has a struggle throughout the course of the book as to what on earth is actually going on with Billy Gardner. So that sets up the romance strand of the story. And on the other hand, at home, she lives with um, with her parents in a housing commission flat building and um, her mother's unwell. She has a relapsing post-traumatic stress disorder that coincides with the time of the year she left Vietnam, which was way back in 1980, and so her mother's sick and her parents have never really spoken freely about their background to Van Ock and she's becoming increasingly curious about it and thinks at 16 she has a right to know what her family's story is. So they're really the two main strands of Cloudwish. Well, you have a very lovely reading voice. (laughs) Thank you. I could listen to it all day. Oh, you're kind. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so you mentioned briefly before that Van Wok is a very minor character in Wildlife. So I guess readers might recognise Van's name and Billy's name from Wildlife, but not sure where they pop up. So like, for example, on page 64 of Wildlife, uh, Lou writes about Holly telling Van to shove over and you give a very brief, quick snapshot of Van's character in that she doesn't want to start any ruckus between Holly and her and she just moves over um, without saying anything. So, you know, what attracted you most to write about her character? Maybe you've mentioned it just then briefly, but what was it about her character and personality that really attracted you to that? Well, I did I did set her up in Wildlife intending to uh, write about her in Cloudwish. So, even though she's barely there, for instance, I spent ages and ages with her name because her name translates as Cloudwish and I wanted it to have some sort of poetic resonance with perhaps her parents' backstory. So a lot of thought went into it even though she's barely on the page at all. And one of the reasons I was uh, inspired to write her is that um, I've been involved in a, in a volunteer tutor program for the last seven years and got to know a whole lot of students who are Vietnamese Australian and the tutor program just it's like a homework club and there's one a sort of a fictional version of it in Cloudwish and it's a it's a time when 200 students and 200 tutors all just gather together in a church hall once a week and the tutors provide an hour of homework assistance so it was really my involvement in homework club and getting to know all those students and seeing the sort of the particular challenge that students have when they're straddling two cultures that made me think of this as a really a fascinating character and also I loved the idea of exploring a character who is very quiet and shy and I've sort of constructed Van Ock so that she's someone who decides look school is just something I have to get through I'm going to fly under the radar I'll get a great result I'll do my art course I'm not telling my parents about that yet but, <laughs> but I really don't want to engage these kids are not my people you know they're a pack of privileged kids I've got really nothing in common with them and I was fascinated at the, the idea of someone with a really rich inner life who just is just keeping herself to herself and that all changes though when Billy starts following her around uh, so there's some of the some of the reasons I was interested in her you know part of my life is the homework club and the idea of a quiet a quiet person who's got a a very turbulent, interesting inner life. And you've written a character which I really related to in terms of the personality of Van Wok. You know, I was that kid that sat in the classroom that remained quiet, didn't raise their hand, uh, didn't want to, you know, have the attention on me, basically. And um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty, like, to me, that's, I'm very much relate to it. You know, that's sort of the person who really is sort of kind of hoping that no one will really ask me a direct question if I'm out in a group at that age. You know, I was, yeah. I was always the person who had a really sort of confident, loud friend, and I'd just be sort of like standing back a little bit. So yeah. I also relate to that sort of character very strongly. Great. That means I'm not alone. <laughs> Melbourne has a very large community and population of Vietnamese people. And so I've read that you did some intense research within the community. Um, what were the processes that you carried out to get into the young mindset of the Van Walk? Well, it was really, I suppose it was really sort of more organic than that in a sense, in that my main um, experience of the community is through homework clubs. So that's really just been once a week, every week for the last seven years. And so, for instance, my um, student, who I first tutored when she was in grade six, is now in year 12. So that's a long time, okay. of, you know, of getting to know um, and, and sort of being at close range with, with a group of people. Um, so that's really my main experience of the community and my engagement with the community. And then as well as that, I did the usual sort of desk research. I read a lot of first-hand accounts okay. of people fleeing um, Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. And as well as that, I spoke to some... I didn't think it would be appropriate to actually sort of interview um, people I knew through the tutor program, but I spoke to some older uh, Vietnamese-Australian people and, you know, I sort of particularly was interested in asking them about the um, that sort of parent-child relationship in this generation. So that's the sort of research I did. And as well as that, of course, the book is, you know, it's about it's about an individual who's who's you know, a more diverse person herself than simply her ethnic background and cultural background. So I also did things like research yeah. oboe playing and research the requirements of Year 12 art folios and research rowing okay. and stuff like that. So there are all sorts of things <laughs> that I was researching. It was good fun, really good fun book to write. So your, your own kids didn't have any input in their experiences at school? Um, for this one I think the um, I've got um, two children and they're both incredibly generous about reading my manuscripts I've got to say they're fantastic and coincidentally they both rowed at school neither of them to an elite level they both did about two years rowing so I had that sort of familiarity of that um, as, a, as a sport not an expertise by any means but you know, vague familiarity, and I did speak to a couple of elite rowers about it. And in fact, one um, one boy I know is now has was actually recruited by Brown in in America um, as a schoolboy okay. rower in Melbourne. So I sort of uh, I asked yeah. his permission, of course, but I did use that story for Billy Gardner's um, rowing story. So in terms of diversity in YA, over the last couple of years has been a discussion or even a debate about writers of a racial majority writing about characters or protagonists who are from a racial minority or just a race completely unlike their own and whether those stories are authentic because the writing experiences don't match up with the characters experiences so having written a novel about a young Vietnamese Australian character whose parents are in quotes boat people what are your thoughts on that yeah I think it's a really you know a really pertinent discussion and I think writing from an outside perspective from a majority perspective of a culture that's not my own I approached it with with huge respect and it's probably something I would not have done had I not had that sort of uh, organic and genuine familiarity with um, you know with this group of students and and then you know having said that I do think that so long as it's approached with respect and there is some genuine connection, I think it's okay to um, to take that step and to write a character from outside your own cultural experience. And then what you do is look for the commonality and write with empathy. And I've tried to do that. I don't think it is the same by no means the same as writing from inside the um, cultural group. And I think when we talk about diversity in YA, which I think everyone would agree um, we need more of, then that's a sort of a, um, a multifaceted thing. And, and one aspect of it, only one aspect, is someone like me, who does come from a cultural majority, um, putting a, a character from a different cultural group at centre stage, and that's what I've done in this book. And, of course, there are other sort of structural things within publishing that we would, you know, everyone would like to see happening so that people who might not have sort of that that sort of automatic middle class access to an industry, an arts industry like publishing, are 
uh, helped into that too. So, you, you know, you would ideally like to see, of course, more editors and more writers from various cultural groups because we are, you know, a terrifically multicultural society and wouldn't it be great if our bookshelves looked a little bit more like, uh, you know, when you go onto a Melbourne tram and you see this terrific diversity. I think we, you know, we're sort of catching up with that probably um, with our with our writing and publishing and we're a bit behind. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's it's been it's picking up in terms of uh, different characters and different voices being uh, written about, but I think there is a long way to go. Totally agree with that, yeah. It's Impossible Things just came out in the US, so congratulations about that. Yeah, thank you. It's just a strange couple of weeks. It's just out like two days ago and then Cloudwish is out here in another week or so. So Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have they don't have Cloudwish until early 2016 next year i think it's i think it's around this time okay, next year okay. so yeah. about a year but in a recent school library journal interview the interviewer asked you about what made australian ya great and uh you replied with i think we benefit from being outs- outsiders now you mentioned that before in terms of writing about characters from an outside perspective but what about reading do you think local readers especially teens are more inclined to read you know those popular international titles because they want to belong to a global audience and not so much as an outsider because we're so far away yeah look that's it's a really interesting question and I think the um to me uh yes there's probably an interest in you know, being a global reader, for sure. But I think the, the big thing that we saw in that recent library survey that showed that, you know, eight out of ten of the top ten borrowed YA titles were American showed a real link between um, film adaptations and the, the tie-in marketing and advertising spend that goes along with that. So it really is, in that sense, like, any other advertised product, there's just a much stronger recognition for those titles that have had a lot of advertising and marketing money put behind them. And then on top of that, you get that sort of, um, I guess, the peer group uh, factor. So lots more people know about a book that's been adapted to a film. More people get it. More people talk about it. And then you get that sort of snowballing effect because teen readers obviously, you know, not so different from adult readers, but love talking to their friends about books and there's word of mouth. And you get this massive sort of um, impact that comes from that huge spend that we actually can't compete with in Australia. We have typically, we have pretty low, you know, very low advertising and marketing spends. So I think that's why the Love Oz YA campaign is so fantastic because it's just generating a little bit of that grassroots talk. And so, for instance, today when I spoke at a school, I've got now in my PowerPoint presentation, I've got a photo. The last two photos, a huge stack of Australian YA titles. And then just the love OzYA hashtag. And I think, you know, the more of us that just keep mentioning it every time we're out and about, and I said to all these students today, look, you know, if you're reading it, check out the hashtag and you'll see news about new releases. Great to make sure you're including some local reading, you know, read everything, but make sure some of the stories are Australian stories and Australian writers because I think we have fantastic YA writers in Australia. And so I think that, you know, we can't compete with the big big movie tie-in spend, but we can sort of generate this nice grassroots campaign that I know you're obviously very involved with that's why we're talking today (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean that's definitely something that Danielle Binks and I brought up in the previous part of this episode about the movie tie-ins and the word of mouth about certain books that are quite hyped and I guess the internet is such a big place and that things can get very lost and I mean we've had Irish authors and South African authors take notice of the movement yeah. and the hashtag levels way but but i think for teens i think it's best that a lot of authors visiting schools like yourself just then promote that as well and i think that's a very good way to show teens that there is something yeah, there exactly that they can yeah no, it's, and it's really great you know just seeing seeing their faces being show this, this you know this huge pile of great titles and and say these are all australian writers so yeah i i think everyone's going to be doing that and trying to sort of generate that yeah just a little bit more awareness is what we need i think you've got a project with simone howell of girl defective and kath crowley of graffiti moon uh, tentatively titled Friends yes, Anonymous, yes, is that it still is. The title? Yep. Um, but how long in the pipeline are you <laughs> We've been a long time, <laughs> a long time not doing very much with it after a really great start. So each of us has been working on our standalone um, manuscripts. So we've got we've got the whole thing plotted 
And we've constructed a way of writing that's fantastic, that each of us has created a character. So we're not sort of uh, all over the same pages, but each each chapter is told from three points of view. And we, we write the chapters mm-hmm. from each of the characters' points of view, but they, they have a different a different uh, facet that they're looking at each each time a chapter's written, and so we take turns at who does the you know who does the first look at the chapter, which we've all plotted together, and that means that you also get to respond to the writer who's who's handing you what you know what has been written so far. So it's really fun. We've loved doing what we've done, but we just haven't done very much. Of it. But we're really <laughs> promising ourselves that this summer is the summer of Friends Anonymous, so we will get there. And I know. <laughs> our, our lovely publisher in um, Australia, Claire Craig, who's the children's publisher at Pan Macmillan, is very keen to see the manuscript, and we're very keen to give it to her. So we're a little bit—we're running a little bit late with that deadline, like quite late, about a year late, I think. And all three of you are with Pan Macmillan, so that yeah, makes things we, a bit easier. It does. Well, Claire's very understanding because she knows what each of us is working on individually, so it's been—it hasn't been too bad. So, is there anything Six Impossible Things related upcoming, or? Is Cloudwish the end for the moment? I've been saying Cloudwish is the end, and the book that I'm sort of working on at the moment is not from the, as one reader calls it, the Six Impossiverse. It's from <laughs> it's a separate it's a separate standalone book and uh, a little bit more of a family psychological drama, but very much still YA. But look, there are so many. A few people have asked me, is there another book in that Crowthorn Grammar and Six Impossible Things Wildlife uh, area? And there are lots of other books I could write in that area. I'm so sort of invested in those characters I know them really well and I've done now this sort of a year nine a year 10 and a year 11 book and you know like am I really not going to do a year 12 book I don't know <laughs> but it, I don't think it'll be the next one but yeah there are a lot there are lots of directions that I that I could certainly head with that same group of characters or certain of the characters and I think that's why I've been so fascinated to show the characters to show the characters going from book to book because I love the idea of a minor character character who just you think is just someone who's a little bit on the outer I just love the idea of bringing them into the center of the stage and showing no this is an interesting person to have a look have a look at this person's story and that is to me a really intriguing thing to do as a writer I love it so yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll conclude it there so thank you so much for answering these questions for the Love Oz YA podcast thanks Brayden and thanks Love Oz YA we love you well how about that how wonderful was Fiona Wood and even before that how nice was David Burden we're all limited on time and this podcast went way over than what I expected it to just over an hour which is incredible but I have to say a big thank you to Danielle Binks for coming to talk about hashtag Love Oz YA to David Burden for talking about how to be happy his memoir and finally Fiona Wood who was talking about her third novel Cloudwish and thank you for listening to this podcast there is no jingle but if you are tech savvy in that music department and have the skills at Way on twitter or instagram and let us know that you have a jingle that we can use here on the podcast thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>